This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Angela Woods. I'm the co-director of um, the Hearing the Voice project at Durham University, and it's my great pleasure to be here today with an esteemed panel of speakers. Um, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about our project um, by way of some context for today's event. Hearing the Voice is an ambitious interdisciplinary study of voice hearing, what psychiatrists call auditory verbal hallucinations. And the aim of our project is to get a better understanding of these experiences. They're usually associated with extreme forms of mental distress, such as psychosis, post-traumatic stress disorder, but voice hearing is also an important part of many ordinary people's experiences. It can tell us some amazing things about the neural foundations of language, about the unity of the self, about what it means to think. Today's event is called Making Meaning of the Voices, and it's the result of a partnership between our project, Hearing the Voice, and the Edinburgh International Book Festival with the strong support of the Wellcome Trust. It's part of a series of events called Conversations with Ourselves. With me today are three people whose conversations with each other and with all of you, I'm sure will transform some of our thinking about hearing voices, about psychosis, and about the various and ingenious survival strategies of the human mind. Eleanor Longdon has just submitted her PhD in psychology at the University of Leeds, and she's currently a research associate at Liverpool University. She's been an inspiration to thousands of voice hearers worldwide. She's published extensively on voice hearing, trauma, dissociation, and recovery. She works actively to support voice hearers in a wide range of settings, and she's a leader of the global hearing voices movement. Her outstanding presentation at the 2013 TED conference has been viewed online 2.5 million times. And her book, Learning from the Voices in My Head, is now available from the TED store. <laughs> Robin Murray is a Glaswegian psychiatrist, as you can possibly tell, and a professor of psychiatric research at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London. His work, which focuses primarily on psychotic illness, has had a global impact also, reshaping our understanding of the role that early childhood events, social adversity and cannabis use can play in the onset and development of psychosis. Sir Robin was knighted in 2011 for his services to medicine, and in that year he also became chair of the Schizophrenia Commission. Conducting a wide-ranging review of the care of people with psychosis in England, the Commission concluded that people with what is called schizophrenia were often neglected, poorly treated and subject to discrimination. The Commission made numerous recommendations for improvement, which we hope to hear more about this afternoon. Finally, James Lee is an Edinburgh-based playwright, much to beloved of fringe and festival audiences. His best-known works, collected as The Ego Plays, are Spain, I Heart Maths and Up!, and they present the cognitive processes of three men whose excessive self-analysis has allowed personal problems to grow to monstrous proportions, but often with comic effects. Exploring themes of midlife existential crisis, post-Darwinian theories of romance, and life in a psychiatric, um, intensive psychiatric unit, the ego plays have been performed across Scotland to critical acclaim. He's the founder of Village Pub Theatre and is currently, his work in progress, the play he's currently working on, is fabulously entitled Alison and Paolo, Donald and Patrick, Fiona and Anyone. So I've asked, um, I've asked Eleanor to, to, to kick our conversation off today by reading an extract from her autobiographical book, Learning from the Voices in My Head. And after that, we'll widen the conversation with ourselves and then during some question and answer time towards the end, a conversation with all of you. So, Eleanor. Thank you very much, Angela. Um, this is a book about a singular and striking human experience, of course, hearing voices that no one else can hear. And this is an absorbing topic. It's been discussed and documented through over 2,000 years of human history. It's been celebrated, consecrated, feared, reviled, and forensically scrutinised 
in such diverse specialities as psychology, philosophy, theology and cultural studies. It's an absorbing topic. It captures the nuance of perception, the nature of self, and it holds a special fascination for me because for nearly half my life I've heard voices myself. And over the years, these voices have terrorised, multiplied, changed, inspired, encouraged, and today are an intrinsic and valued part of my identity. But there was also a time when their presence drove me to delirious extremes of misery, desperation, and despair. And the evolution of this understanding and the remarkable privileges and terrible penalties that it incurred form the basis of this book, Learning from the Voices in My Head. It's the winter of 2001. The scene is an acute psychiatric ward. In one of the side rooms, a girl lies curled up, dirty blonde hair coiling across the floor. Her arms are meticulously stippled with cuts and cigarette burns. The girl is me, or whatever it is that's left. I've not been in psychiatry long, but I'm already starting to be considered a complex case, the one no one wants. My medical notes are a wretched litany of impairment, self-mutilation, insomnia, recklessness, paranoia, terrifying visual and tactile hallucinations. And the voices. Dear God, the voices. They are without control, without restraint, without mercy, without limits. Some of them sound like children, and these ones sob and scream, inconsolable with grief and pain and terror. There are adolescent voices that jibe and taunt, Some of them are adults and are inscrutable with malice and cruelty, a thick, saturating contempt that's cloying and viscous as tar. The worst one is a male voice. Even the others are somewhat afraid of him. His slightest utterance can quell them all. Proud and imperious as a pharaoh, his words have a stinging metallic quality and he uses them sparingly and well. He can be mocking and belittling if he chooses, in a bored, contemptuous way, like someone idly pulling wings from a fly. But then suddenly and ferociously he will change, hissing threats, premonitions and judgments of such implacable and austere hatred, such grotesque, graphic violence, that they take your breath away and leave you gasping with horror and disbelief. He is the sound of screeching industrial machinery, of someone being flayed, of despair. He sounds like the silence after a death sentence is pronounced, the noise of someone's spirit breaking. He sounds like hell. In the following months, the desperation to rid myself of these phantom tormentors will grow so frenzied and feverish that I will plan to drill a hole in my head in order to get them out. The voyage I took from there to here was torturous and exhausting. It was also long. But it was ultimately transformative and led to undreamt vistas of opportunity and insight. A broken, haunted person began the journey. But the person who emerged from the wreckage and despair was a survivor and would ultimately grow into the person I was destined to be. How did such conversion take place? That story forms the basis of this book, a story of a life in several acts, trauma, degradation, madness, redemption. And what of the horrifying dominant voice? Well, he remains, but he is altered beyond all recognition. He can occasionally be scathing and cruel, but more often he is witty, supportive, and a locus of energy and motivation. The power that went into terrorising me is now challenged into alliance and fellowship. From being a person who wanted to die rather than live with their voices, I can now say with true sincerity that I'm proud to be a voice hearer. Throughout this process, what I would ultimately learn was that each voice was closely related to aspects of myself, and that each of them carried overwhelming emotions that I'd never had an opportunity to process and resolve, of shame, anger, loss, and low self-worth. A series of devastating events had literally shattered me into fragments, and these pieces had become so disowned that I no longer recognised them as part of myself. The voices took the place of the pain and gave words to it, and their complexity reflected this. They were different ages, harboured different memories, contained diverse repertoires of intellect and emotion. Some voices, for example, represented the parts of me that had identified with the people who had harmed me. These were the voices that said, you're worthless, you caused this, you deserve everything that happens to you. Obviously, a part of me had internalised this message and believed it. But of course, the voices were not the abusers. Rather, they represented my reactions to the abuse and my attempts to process it. Many voice hearers can struggle with this kind of conflict. 
Yet where voices are experienced as real and are often associated with real people and genuine emotions, they are not real people, but reflect an internal emotional world. Rather than berate these voices, I would thank them for drawing my attention to how much pain I was in and for emerging at points when they were most needed. Awful things have happened to you, I said to them one day, and you've carried all the negative emotions and memories, and all I've ever done in return is attack and criticise you. It must have been really hard to be so vilified and misunderstood. There was a very long pause before a response finally came. Yes, thank you. Recovering from this psychic civil war was a gruelling journey that took many years and to an extent still continues to this day, albeit in a very different form. But throughout all that time, possibly one of the greatest revelations was when I I realised that the most hostile, aggressive voices actually represented the parts of me that had been hurt the most profoundly. And as such, it was these voices that needed to be shown the greatest compassion and care. In turn, this meant sending a loving, compassionate message of acceptance and respect towards myself. My voices seemed like the problem. They were actually part of the solution, an inextricable part of the healing process. The writer Jeanette Winterson describes this concept beautifully. I often hear voices. I realise that drops me in the crazy category, but I don't much care. If you believe, as I do, that the mind wants to heal itself and that the psyche seeks coherence, not disintegration, then it isn't hard to conclude that the mind will manifest whatever is necessary to work on the job. Thank you. Thank you, Elena. That's a, just an extraordinarily powerful passage from an extraordinarily powerful book. I guess many people um, in the, the sort of general public would think that hearing voices or having an auditory verbal hallucination was a symptom of some kind of underlying brain disease. And what you've outlined is a very different, very powerful view of voices. Mm. Can you describe for us a little bit more about how you came to this understanding? Ooh, um I think that probably the moment that was the most significant in, in respect of that exploration was discovering an organisation called the Hearing Voices Movement. Um, and it really isn't hyperbole to say that it changed my life. Um, and the metaphor that I use is it was like spending years and years roaming through this absolute just desolation, this wilderness where you're like trapped between the nightmare of the present, the horrors of the past, and this utter desolation in the future where you feel that the world no longer has anything to offer you and you have nothing to offer to the world. Um, And it was as if somebody had just appeared and reached out a hand and said, come with me, I will show you a way out of this. Um, And in mental health, there are organisations perceived as great research organisations or great medical organisations or organisations excelling in research methodology. And to me, the Hearing Voices Movement is a great humanitarian organisation and it reaches out across the world. Um, And the message that it uh, is sort of propagating and has done so for over 20 years is, first of all, the emphasis that it is your experience. Um, It's important that the voice hearer has the freedom and the autonomy to come to terms and understand that experience, however they deem the most appropriate, whether it's psychological, medical, paranormal, spiritual, cultural, technological, um, to try and empower voice hearers to try and help them cultivate a positive sense and a positive identity as someone who hears voices. Um, But crucially, very much as as you just sort of alluded to, Angela, that seeing that this experience that's so pathologised and stigmatised in the West should not be seen as a piece of biological bad luck to be endured. It shouldn't be seen just as as an aberrant symptom of schizophrenia, but a complex, significant and meaningful experience to be explored. And it's not about romanticising voice hearing, so recognising that voices can be intensely distressing and disabling for people, but seeing that this is an experience that is meaningful, that is an opportunity for learning and growth, even if those lessons can be very painful and very difficult. Um, and as such, using it to really emancipate voice hearers, because I think for me, I had been told that I would have been better off by a psychiatrist, you would be better off with cancer, Eleanor, because cancer is easier to cure than schizophrenia. Um, and that's an incredibly hopeless message. Um, the belief that there was nothing I could do except take medication and hope for the best. And what the Hearing Voices movement was telling me is that actually, if, if that conventional 
cure response um, is about drugging and sedation, then understanding, accepting and integrating the meaning of your experience, that is the recovery response. Um, and it offered solidarity and community um, and a real belief that people can and do recover, that recovery is a fundamental human right. So that would be it in a nutshell, albeit a massive one, um, <laughs> is the Hearing it's Voices kind. movement, um, which was, did, yes, literally saved my life. Yeah. Robin, it's um, uh, something I know you've, you've presented at the Hearing Voices movement um, annual congress in your capacity as the chair of the Schizophrenia Commission. And as part of that process, you undertook wide-ranging consultation across the country, or across England, rather, um, with people who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, with people who cared for people, with people working across mental health services. Did you find that the idea of voices as meaningful was something that that came up in those conversations or were people outlying different kinds of approaches that perhaps didn't resonate as much with a, a hearing voices movement approach? Well, I think, uh, as Eleanor has outlined, people understand their voices in a whole range of, of, of different ways. And as again, as she said, it's whatever is most helpful to them. But I think I would agree I mean, first of all, I should say that it's a great book and uh, I, I found it uh, very interesting. One, because it describes so well the crisis of having uh, uh, the, 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 the symptoms and the despair and the distress, but also it, it describes the, 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 the fact that outcome can be, can be very good. We, we have followed up about 500 people who got a diagnosis of acute psychosis, mostly a uh, conventionally would, be, would get a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And 10 years later, about half uh, would, had, had no symptoms, uh, significant symptoms at all. Now, s some of them were still taking uh, med medication, but other, others weren't. So I think one of the good things about the Hearing Voices movement is, and, uh, and Eleanor's book, is uh, challenging this idea that, that Psychosis inevitably it has, has, a, has a bad outcome. Mm. Lots and lots of people uh, have a psychotic episode and totally, totally recover. But of course, most are pretty shy about coming out and, and, and saying that. And that's the difficulty in our society. It is identified as being pathological. Uh, and therefore, people don't, when, when people get into a state where they're hearing voices, they think they're the only person in the world. And one of the things that Hearing Voices does is, uh, I guess, uh, one mixes with a whole range of people, some who have troubling voices and some who are quite entirely happy uh, or, uh, and benefit from their voices. So there, there's a whole range. I think um, one of the things that we've been investigating as part of our project and, and, and numer numerous other researchers are interested in, in the same thing is the relationship between hearing voices and, and inner speech and you know, what might be experiences very widely shared of, of having very strong internal voices that may not be quite the same as hearing voices but may have an interesting relationship. James, in your play Up, the main character, Robert, is in an intensive psychiatric unit and there's a really powerful um, passage in the play where he's describing the kind of, um, I guess, compulsive inner, inner dialogue that's going on in his mind and the kind of guilty associations with it. Can you tell us a little bit about the character and about the extent to which that kind of inner dialogue coming into the, to the theatrical moment was something that, um, yeah, that you were wrestling with in thinking about the pathology? Yes. Um, I, th I think with that character, yeah, it is a He's really trying to work things out, um, really trying to solutionise his, his, the situation he finds himself in, which is a situation where he has intrusive, unwanted thoughts um, that he cannot rationalise and go, well, those are, what, those are something other. He, can't, um, he is trying to solutionise to kind of get rid of these thoughts, and he's and he's listening to these too much, and he's working with these in a kind of... It becomes psychotic because he's kind of pursuing this kind of logic, which doesn't really make logical sense, but he's pursuing some kind of through line of logic to take him to some more comfortable escape from how he's feeling, but it doesn't work. It kind of spirals in on, 
on himself and, and creates a madness and creates a real turmoil of where he's going round and round in circles of, of psychosis, basically, of not finding solutions to make himself feel better, but finding more and more uh, material for his problem and more and more problems, really. So what, what in, for, for all of you, I guess, what are, are some of the ways in which those meaning-making processes can best be supported? If, as you've described, a kind of process where a, a kind of compulsive meaning-making is not ending up solving problems but actually furthering them or creating them, what are the best ways of supporting people who might be in those kind of predicaments? <laughs> um, it's a really interesting question, and I think from... My perspective, somebody who's worked for, for several years in the NHS supporting people who have voices and also as part of the Hearing Voices movement, um, is initially giving the person the, the freedom to explore their own experience for themselves, so not coercively imposing a meaning on it. Um, and in my work, I am critical of some elements of very sort of traditional approaches to voice hearing that are very much based in, in pathology. Um, but equally, I don't want to be guilty of my own criticism by forcing a psychological explanation on someone. Um, my own understanding of my own experience is very much based in a trauma framework and a psychological framework and an emotional framework, but also recognising that it's not my place to insist um, to another voice hearer that that's the meaning of their experience. Um, and that's a very common grievance in psychiatric services, that things like cultural and spiritual explanations for one's voices are overridden and ignored. Um, a technique that I use a lot is something called voice profiling, um, which was developed by Roman Escher, who are the founders, uh, a psychiatrist and a journalist, who are the founders, really, of the hearing voices movement and of this whole approach to working with voices. Um, and Marius Rom typifies voices as messengers that communicate um, genuine, real information, often about overwhelming problems in the person's life. And as he puts it, it simply does not make sense to shoot the messenger and deny the content of the message. So one thing we do is to explore what's the, the uh, phenomenology of the voices, because so often we're told to ignore them, we're told to distract ourselves, to try and push them away. And actually by listening to what they're communicating can actually reveal profound insights into genuine problems in our lives and as emotional <coughs> metaphors. And if we're profiling voices, what we would ask is first the identity of the voices. How old are they? Do they have names? Are they male? Are they female? Are they children? Um, then we would ask what the characteristics of the voices. Um, are they malevolent? Are they benevolent? Is there a hierarchy between them? What do they actually say? Do they remind you of anyone you know? Has anyone else ever said those things to you? Um, we would ask Thirdly, the triggers, what situations, emotions or people provoke the voices and how do the voices respond to those triggers. Fourthly, we would ask, for me, what's one of the most important questions is what was happening in the person's life when each voice appeared for the first time and has the voice changed since then in terms of content or influence. And finally, I think, again, actually the most important question, what happened in your life before you heard voices? Because, of course, so often in voice hearing, as in much, if not all, mental distress, the person's unique biography carries vital communication about the course and content of their subsequent experiences. And through that, we would ask two key questions. Who or what may the voices represent? And what problems may the voices represent? Um, and we recently, a colleague and I did this with 100 voice hearers, nearly all of them diagnosed with schizophrenia. They'd all heard voices for nearly 18 years. This was a so-called chronic schizophrenia sample. And those two key questions could be answered in around 80 to 90% of cases. Again, it was very apparent that these voices were meaningful experiences and subsequently gives us clues in how we can serve the person's recovery if they're distressed by their voices. What problems the voices represent can be then translated into trying to find real-world solutions. So, Robin, are people in, in sort of mainstream mental health services in the UK getting access to this kind of... Um, to this kind of approach within mainstream services? Should they be getting access more to access to this kind of approach? Well, I think the difficulty is that the psychiatric services are very underfunded mm. and if, if I go and talk, like recently I went and talked to uh, mental health service uh, workers in Derby and I said, do, if somebody presents for the first time with what appears to be an acute psychotic illness, is there the possibility that they could have psychological treatment? 
Uh, and everybody said, uh, yes, we have psychological services. And but I said, how long do you have to wait? And they, and they said 18 months. Mm. So it's uh, by that time, in a sense, if, if you're having paranoid thoughts, if you, have the, if you only have them for a, for a little while, then it's much easier to, to, to get rid of them than if, you, just in the same way that our thoughts are full of our holidays and our friends and so on, if you feel, felt that people are against you for the last 18 months, it's much more difficult to, to realize that you, you might have misunderstood uh, some, some of the things going on around you. So in theory, the NHS provides psychological approaches of a, a range of different kinds, uh, but in practice it's very difficult. And even, uh, although the, <coughs> the, 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 there are many branches of the Hearing Voices Network actually getting uh, somebody to, to one where I practice in, in inner London is quite, quite dif difficult. So we're at a stage where the government says there ought to be parity of uh, of esteem for people with psychological and physical problems, but in practice, on the ground, the money is being siphoned out of the mm -hmm. psychological services to go to the to patch up the crisis in the A and E units. Mm -hmm. So things are actually getting worse at present. I think. It strikes me as well that there's um, there there's some fundamental shifts in the way collectively we're thinking about what psychosis is and might be, and whether that's schizophrenia or whether that's other kinds of psychosis. That certainly, um, and as researchers, both your work, Eleanor, and certainly your work over over 30 years, Robin has has pointed to some real shifts in the way in the evidence base for thinking about what some of the contributing factors towards people hearing voices and suffering from distress and suffering from psychosis might be. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of those shifts as you've investigated them and, and what we now know about what contributes to, a, to an increased risk um, of, of developing psychosis. So <clears throat> I guess when I came into psychiatry, most, almost all psychiatrists believed that schizophrenia was a real discrete disease entity mm. and uh, that, that, that uh, in some ways it was uh, it, it, the term had, had come out of the, the, a, un, a unit of a man called Kreppelin and his department also had Alzheimer's so Alzheimer's had described this illness of deteriorating late on in life and Kreppelin thought that schizophrenia was a bit like that, except that it happened early in life. So that was the sort of basis from which the, the idea came. But subsequently, we realized that it's not degenerative, it's not a deteriorating illness. And then we realized that psychological factors contribute. And now I guess we know that uh, developmental problems, both biological and psychological, and I, as Eleanor said, in some people's cases, abuse in childhood is very important, but lots of people uh, develop a psychosis who've had a lovely childhood. Uh, and there are, then there are other factors like discrimination, particularly in people, uh, migrants or people of, uh, of colour. And uh, then uh, there's drug, drug abuse, I guess, is perhaps the most preventable uh, uh, cause of psychosis at present. And then bullying and a range of adversities uh, contribute. So one of the nice things about chairing the Schizophrenia Commission was that the various researchers and the, the geneticists, the psychologists, the sociologists, they all agreed that it was multifactorial. It wasn't that uh, the sociologists were fighting with the biological psychiatrists. So we, 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 we now sort of realize that there's a, there's a range of different factors can, can, cause, can cause the symptoms. And even we, there's some doubt as to, well, there's more than doubt that I don't think most experts in schizophrenia, curiously, don't believe it exists as an entity, mm. Mm. which is it's rather odd. paradox, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Could I Absolutely, yeah. Um, I completely agree with, Rob, with uh, what Robin's just described. I think it would be very um, precarious to say there is one definitive cause um, of a sort of cluster of experiences that gets called psychosis. Um, but I think what the evidence is increasingly showing um, very, very powerfully and very substantially 
is this link between, as you say, adversity. And I think the term adversity is, is better than trauma um, because trauma is quite narrow and it's very sort of culturally loaded. Um, and certainly I've worked with many people who have not been sort of sexually or physically abused in childhood um, and have not been traumatised in the classic sort of PTSD criterion A sense of trauma, um, but have also reports of things like unmet needs, losses, attachment disruption, sort of more subtly difficult to define adversities, um, but have had some kind of experience of oppression, injustice, loss, um, that sort of is conspiring to create somebody fundamentally is very unhappy and maybe confused in the world. Um, and I think something that's also very, very important um, is, is how then subsequently everyone around you reacts to your experiences. So for me, for example, when I first started hearing voices, um, it didn't really become a problem until everyone around me started telling me that it was. Um, and suddenly it stopped being an experience and it became a symptom. Um, and that created very quickly a vicious cycle of me becoming very antagonistic and rejecting towards the voices, which in turn caused the voices to become stronger and more aggressive. Um, it caused huge social disruption. It caused a huge loss of confidence. Um, and if people sort of, I think, could react to individuals who maybe do have unusual beliefs, beliefs that we might call delusional, but in another context might be just seen as an eccentric and uh, quite unique belief, when you call it a delusion, then it becomes something pathological again, it becomes a symptom. When somebody hears voices, who may have heard voices for a very long time, and so they say, no, that's an auditory hallucination, it's possibly a symptom of schizophrenia, then again, the person's reaction to their own experience will, will radically shift. So it's not just necessarily what you believe, it's how you believe it and how the people around you will give you, support you to understand and accept and accommodate those beliefs and experiences. And I think that's one of the, the really striking things about the Hearing Voices movement approach is that the goal is not to be rid of voices necessarily. It's not to, to not have the symptom. It's a different relationship with voices. It's, it's not necessarily being free from them, as it were. Yeah. Which kind of leads on to the, to, the, to the profound point about recovery in all sorts of ways, that there are ways in which people can still have experiences that might be classed as symptoms or might be understood as symptoms, but that go on to lead very rich and productive lives and, and to see some of those experiences in very positive and creative ways. Um, we were talking earlier, James, about the kind of long-standing cultural history of a kind of exploration of creativity and madness. And I wondered if that featured in some of your work as a playwright and in, in some of the ways that you thought about the kind of productivity of certain kinds of unusual experiences in your life and, and more broadly. Yeah, I, th I think definitely with my work, with what I do is kind of mirrors my experience of, because I've personally had experience, don't know if you mentioned that yet, of psychosis and I'm bipolar and I've had manic episodes. And I think the process of searching for solu solutionizing, searching for solutions um, is a process which I've definitely mirrored in my playwriting where my protagonists are often l trying to find a ridiculous or extreme or radical solution for their problem and that's kind of how I approach writing a play and rather than when I've had a um, psychotic episode myself it's been like me role-playing that solutionizing in my own life and living that out in my life whereas in my writing a play, I can project it onto a protagonist and they can have that nightmarish, hellish experience instead. <laughs> so Keeping them very much at a yeah. distance. <laughs> Excellent. Did you I, I think one of the most interesting things that has come out in recent years is that people with bipolar illness in particular often come from very creative families and you can actually think of families like the Huxleys or the Tennysons where there are uh, poets and authors and people <coughs> who have had remarkable uh, creative life, and then, but sadly also people who have had chronic depression and uh, suicide. And, and so if you look, often we think that people who have psychiatric troubles have had deficiencies in their experience or, or their life. But if you look at children who go on to develop bipolar illness, they actually do better at school than the rest of us. So it's a very curious thing. It's really this. I always tell psychiatrists that say, uh, you know, older psychiatrists, how you do, how are your children doing it 
children doing at school and they say oh they're doing pretty well I said oh be careful you, you, you don't want them to do too well because you might be at risk of developing so it's an interesting thing that bipolar illness seems to be in some way related to creativity and, and ability I'm keen at this point to see we've got such a large audience and I'm sensing a very kind of engaged audience and I wonder if there are any questions that you have for any of our speakers. Yes, do we have a fabulous a microphone? If you could just um, speak clearly into the microphone so we could all hear, that would be terrific. I have so many questions I hardly know what to start with. Just pick um, one. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I understand. Um, one thing that intrigues me is the idea that voices can be used to help solve problems. Uh, can we see a f possible future in which voices could be deliberately uh, created uh, as a method of solving problems? Is there any, any potential for that? Fascinating question. Mm. Would you like to? Um, it is a fascinating question, and my, my niche response is actually you can induce people to hear voices but you have to do really horrible things to them so things like sort of sensory deprivation people will often then start hearing voices um, if you expose people to a sort of like intense stress intense pain bereavement physical and emotional pain then they may start hearing voices um, in terms of sort of more benign experience of voices happening um, I think Durham is actually involved in a project at the moment is trying to engage with uh, people who hear voices who've never required the use of psychiatric services. And I think that's a very, very interesting group in terms of what we can learn from people who have these experiences and, and are not troubled by them. Um, I think what you're sort of kind of tapping into is something that we, we really need to... Well, it sort of reflects in a way that how, how much more open-minded the sort of psych disciplines, I think, really need to be towards these very extraordinary experiences like hearing voices, um, which in centuries ago I think people were much more open-minded in the idea of that this was quite a profound communicative experience, that it was seen as a cultural experience, as a spiritual experience. Um, and in other non-Western cultures that's still happening. Um, it tends to be in the industrialised West that we've reified voice hearing and, and stigmatised it and pathologised it. I think what, for me, it speaks to is this very profound level of, of sort of co-consciousness almost in an individual um, and raises all kinds of fascinating questions about perception and, you know, the kind of things that Angela was describing earlier. And the Hearing the Voice Project, so multidisciplinary initiative is really trying to explore voice hearing in a much more sophisticated way that, that you're sort of alluding to. I think there's an interesting um, context as well in which people are seeking very much those experiences and they can be in very intensive um, religious contexts. So there's a, a fascinating book by the anthropologist Tanya Lerman mm. about um, an evangelical, evangelical Christianity in the, in the US and people who have a very complex series of, of rituals around prayer, around becoming in a state of readiness to try and, and to get access, as it were, to, to the voice of God or to spiritual voices. So that's a very specific circumstance, but it speaks to mm. that idea that, that these experiences are not necessarily always either distressing or unwanted or, in some senses, symptomatic. Mm. Um, well, I guess, as Eleanor was saying before, they only become, they become distressing when other people are like, that's weird, you're yeah, being weird. you're wrong. And similarly with with psychosis, like the first time I had a psychotic episode, it was escalated very quickly and I was in a psychiatric ward and then I was suddenly in a locked psychiatric ward and it was all just because nobody understood the way that I was feeling and nobody was like, it's, it's okay, you know, this isn't reality, but it's okay. It was the fear that I saw back from other people meant that it escalated very quickly. The next time round, I was like, not going to let this happen again. So it is about being kind of calmer about the experience. It's not for me. It's not voices, but it's um, unreal, like extreme unreality, which is inseparable from reality. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about going. This experience isn't, you know, distancing yourself, but not having that fear reaction and shutting it down and mm -hmm. being ne really negative about it. Yeah. I think that's a really lovely explanation. I think what would be, I would like to see the sort of more in mental health services rather than everyone gathering around saying what's wrong with you is rather what's happened to you. And that's a very important question that doesn't get asked anywhere near enough, I think. Mm -hmm. 
is it fair to say that maybe eight, nine percent of the population will hear voices mm. at so, some point, but the people who come to the mental health services are not co coming because they have happy, supportive voices. Mm. They're, com they're coming because they have voices that say hellish and horrible things to them, and that's often in the context of depression. Uh, and uh, you know, when if voices are partly your own thoughts, if you're feeling very low in self-esteem, you're feeling hopeless, you think you're useless, perhaps the world would be better off without you, you then hear these, uh, these as voices. Whereas people, for example, who've lost a loved, a loved one can, can actually benefit very greatly from hearing the voice uh, of the person who's died. I have a, a, a very good friend who was incapacitated for about 15 months after his wife died, and then he, he, seemed to, he got much more cheerful. And I asked him what what what, what, what was it, what was it? And he said, "I hear I hear Irene's voice, and she tells me what to do." So, in, in such a case, there's there's no need for somebody to come and see a psychiatrist or a psychologist when the voices are very positive. Yeah, we're we're doing a study at the moment in collaboration with the Edinburgh International Book Festival about writers hearing the voices of their characters. And some people describe, you know, imaginative experience and some people have very, very are telling us about very, very vivid encounters that they have in an intensely creative way with characters um, who are in the course of, of entering either their fictional worlds or in some cases speaking from history. So there are these really different contexts and really different forms of experience that tend to be bracketed, I guess, when, when we focus only exclusively on the distressing ones. Mm. Are there more questions? Yes, over in the other corner. The gentleman with the stripy blue shirt. <laughs> I wonder if we're revisiting Ronnie Lang just a little. Um, Divided Self spoke about the beauty of schizophrenia. And, of course, this is a huge sort of including too many things. But if we take what we've heard beautifully today, that, that the voices can be a positive thing, Ronnie Lang's message was schizophrenia is a beautiful alternative way of being. I heard that before I became a psychiatrist and I thought it was wonderful. The rest of my professional career taught me to think it was awful. I now have to rethink again that maybe he was half right. Any thoughts um, on Lang and his legacy? I think uh, the, the uh, saying of Lang that I particularly like, um, it's sort of paraphrasing, but this whole concept of same reaction to insane circumstances, um, which I think is also captured very beautifully in the Jeanette Winterson quote, the idea that this is, again, this sort of like manifestation of the mind trying to heal, that something has happened that was overwhelming um, and is exhibiting in this particular way. And I think Lang sort of really tried to capture that. Um, this goes a little bit actually sort of backpedalling somewhat, um, but the concept of the divided self um, I think is very, very interesting because there's a fascinating literature that's emerged in the last five years really about dissociation um, and the considerable overlap between what gets called dissociation and what gets called uh, schizophrenia. And dissociation, if it's possible to explain it in a simple way, um, is basically a kind of psychological response to intense distress. And it's the idea that certain uh, psychological and physical experiences become disconnected from one another. Um, so if you talk about people feeling shattered, feeling fragmented, the idea that these things are sort of being broken off and are difficult to access. Um, when Eugene Bloyer, is that right? Bloyer. Yep. Um, when you look at his, he was the psychiatrist who originally coined the term schizophrenia. Um, and schizophrenia in Greek means split mind. Um, split is a very powerful dissociative me uh, metaphor. And when you look at a, a psychiatrist called Colin Ross, who's written a beautiful um, book chapter about this, is when you examine Bloyler's original descriptions of schizophrenia, I'm sorry, it's like an automatic, I have to do that when I say schizophrenia, <laughs> is that he was describing people who were very, very dissociative. So he was talking about people with separate personality states, people switching, people being split. Um, and what we now know, which Bloyler didn't, is that dissociation is a profound response to overwhelming stress and trauma. And what Colin Ross argues is that Bloyer was describing a group of very, very distressed, traumatised people. Um, 
I think that's very interesting because, again, and, and Lang sort of spoke to this as well, uh, is a different way of approaching these experiences of this, the, again, the psychic civil war of people literally at war with themselves. Um, and whether you want to call that schizophrenia, um, if people find that helpful, that's great. A lot of people don't, of course. Um, the important thing is trying to understand what these experiences mean to people and how we can use multiple interventions, medication being one, um, but there are many, many others, psychological, of course, peer support, community support, um, social support, helping people find a sense of dignity and self-respect and purpose again. And to reclaim the meaning of their own experiences, I think, is very, very important and, again, a crucial part of recovery. Absolutely. Robin, did you have a, as a Glaswegian psychiatrist, yes. you must have a view no, on No, I was very, <laughs> I, I came into psychiatry also having read Ryan Lang and was very enthusiastic because he was Glaswegian and uh, <laughs> I, so I, but uh, I think we know some things he said were correct. He said that people with, who hear voices or are, are, have, have paranoid ideas are not a separate category, mm. but are part, perhaps are part of a dimension. Mm. And he also said that we should try and understand their experiences. And at that time, uh, by and large, psychiatrists were not taught to try and understand what, that, what the voices represented. So these were the good sides of Ronnie Lang. And of course, it's a great book that it, it divided itself to understand the acute psychotic uh, experience. But on the other hand, a psychiatrist of my age met many families who were destroyed, not by the, the, their child becoming... Uh, psychotic, but by, by being accused by psychiatrists or social workers of having caused it in the way they brought up the child. So that, that uh, was, uh, and that was one of the reasons for why people like me were not able to look at a, a, a childhood adversity objectively for such a long time because we saw the families that were damaged. The other thing that Lang denied totally the idea that any uh, there could be any genetic contribution. And now that is now beyond doubt. We now uh, know that there is a familial uh, and uh, a weak, a quite, a, quite a weak genetic contribution so that some families uh, or, or some individuals, but one has to think, why is it that someone who has experiences some very adverse experience will get depressed? and someone will become obsessional, someone would have psychotic experiences. We all have different uh, genetic liabilities, and we have to think why can, some, can most people consume vast amounts of, of speed and cannabis without ever developing psychosis, whereas other people it's, it's quite easy. So there, there, there are these... Uh, there, 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 there was the, the good and the bad in what Ronnie Lang said, I think. Mm, very true. And we've got time for one more question. Yes, right in the middle. Sorry, that was a bit um, inconsiderate when it came to passing the microphone. <laughs> Thank you very much. There hasn't been much discussion about the uh, problem of genuine belief in the voices, that they're coming from somebody real and somebody powerful. Um, I have a relative who... Um, has malign voices uh, quite regularly, and they're so real he has to believe them. There's no way he can be, be persuaded that they're not real. They're coming from powerful people in public life that he's never met. But these are people who are able to control him to the extent that he attempted to commit suicide. So they're very distressing, and he cries out for help when these things happen. Um, now, I'm curious as to how Eleanor managed to uh, get over the reality uh, hurdle, if you like, because I presume that a voice will cease to be distressing if you believe it's not real. What a good question. Um, Kaza, I'm going to do a very quick and shameless plug, but for people in the audience who are sort of got these kind of things about how do I cope with voice hearing, Please go to uh, www.intervoiceonline.org, which is the website for the International Hearing Voices Movement, which contains an enormous amount of literature and coping and recovery strategies. And it's very, very useful for anyone who, or who either hears distressing voices or supports someone else who did. Um, in terms of my own experience, my mum and I were talking about this actually not that long ago, um, where when my voices became really, really bad, I was adamant, I don't need a psychiatrist, I need a priest, because I was so... Uh, you know, nobody could have told me that those voices aren't demonic. 
um, and I was absolutely certain that that was the case. Um, and really, the, again, it's difficult to sort of pinpoint one definitive thing that sort of changed my belief in that. Um, but I think one of the thing was it was a, it was a process basically. So first of all, it was trying to actively engage with the voice hearing experience and starting to notice inconsistencies in the voices account of themselves. So the voices would claim to be able to do X, Y, and Z in the external world, and I would start looking out for the fact that actually that wasn't quite true. Um, and that I was just believing them unconditionally. They claimed to be able to do things. They, they lied, basically. They claimed to have more power than they actually could. Um, by noticing more and more inconsistencies, so for instance, that this voice, one particular voice claiming to be the devil, um, and I was a bit, but hang on, he has a human voice and a Yorkshire accent, no less. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then beginning to... Uh, set little boundaries for the voices. So, for instance, I would say things like, um, you can't talk to me until 8 o'clock tonight, and I w if you come at 8 o'clock, I will listen to you, I will respond to you, um, we will have half an hour, but I will not acknowledge you before or after that time. It's a technique, the hearing voice movement, called time-sharing. Um, not everyone finds it helpful, I should also say, but that was something that worked really well for me. And eventually, because the voices actually did want to be listened to, they realised there was something in it for them, and they began to come at 8 o'clock and I would listen to them. Now, what kind of, you know, if, if their voices are so powerful, why do they have to sit around and wait until like, EastEnders has finished before they, before they turn up? And it began to, again, raise real questions about maybe what they're telling me isn't necessarily completely true. Um, and another prominent activist in the hearing voices movement called Peter Bullimore tells a great story where he, like me, believed for many years his voices were demonic and he describes meeting another voice hearer who simply said to him, you need to address the demons of your past um, and for him that was very, very powerful because it made him realise that actually these, these sort of demonic voices were actually the voices of the people who'd abused him the thing about reality, sorry, I'll be very quick is an interesting question because I think the voices are real for the voice hearer, those voices are real, and I still hear voices now. Um, I heard voices when I was doing that reading. Um, you know, I hear them constantly, and I don't want to get rid of them. I'm really happy that they're there, and those voices for me are, are real. But what I also know now, of course, is that they're not objectively real. They're subjectively a real experience. So I think sort of telling people that the voices aren't real can just create a sort of a battle almost, because for the voice hearer, they are real. But it's trying to understand, again, what they mean to the voice hearer and how it can help them become less intrusive and distressive. Um, and Intervoice, again, has a, a huge range of very rich information on different ways of trying to support people to do that. I think that's a, a, a fabulous note to end on, and I'm, I'm sorry that we have to, to wind up what's been an absolutely fascinating hour. I'm sure we could continue. There's so much more to explore in this really rich and fascinating topic and more questions to hear. Um, Ellen has already mentioned the Intervoice website. There are a whole range of other resources, including the, the Hearing the Voice website. Um, and we are going to um, be in the signing tent afterwards where you can collect a copy of James's book of plays, The Ego Plays. Unfortunately, unless you brought your Kindle with you um, and Eleanor could sign the back of your Kindle, she can't actually sign her book, but we can tell you how to get it from the TED store. And I think last count, Robin had 512 peer-reviewed articles. So if you've bought any of his work, I'm sure he too would be happy to sign it. Um, but they'll certainly be there if you have more informal questions for them at the end. So now it just falls to me to thank all of you for coming this afternoon and for, for participating in this event, but particularly a huge thank you to James, to Robin and to Eleanor for everything that you've shared and for all the kind of insight and the hope that you've given us. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.